not new here, welcome back. The last couple of weeks, um, actually this whole summer, we've been working through the book of James, and we're going to continue on today in James chapter 4. But I'm following up on some really great preaching in the book of James. Uh, last week, Ron Coya, Rick, uh, Rick Barnett, like just such good preaching through the book. And I was sitting there thinking as I was preparing my sermon, how do I summarize what these guys did concisely? And I didn't figure it out. But I have, a, I have this one line about James, and it's this. James gives godly wisdom for everyday life. You see, the world has a narrative that it's trying to sell us. The world has a wisdom to offer, but James gives us the godly wisdom for everyday life that is true, whereas the world's falls short. And today we're going to see just that. We're going to continue on. We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there. So growing up, uh, everyone tends to have a bent in academics, in high school, junior high, even in college. In my experience, I saw it two different ways. I saw people as being really good in science and mathematics, or really good in history and English. Some people are like mutants, they can be both, but for me... I was more of the English, the history, uh, the humanities type guy, soft sciences, sociology. I was kind of hardwired to fail when it came to science and technology and mathematics. It just, it was probably because I was lazy and partially because I really don't care to know how things work. It's just not something I was curious of. I really wanted to know the why. Like, why did we create this? Why are we using it? And so that was where my interests were piqued. But lately, over the last couple of weeks, um, really the last couple of months, I've been really interested in this idea of artificial intelligence. You guys know what artificial intelligence is? It's, re- it's really interesting stuff. It's broad. Um, it's very broad. But for the sake of this, I'm defining artificial intelligence as artificial general intelligence. Think computers and machines thinking for themselves, willing, self-determining, and doing as they will apart from people. And the heavy hitters uh, of big tech and these articles and magazines that I've been reading on artificial intelligence have been, have been pretty, uh, I don't know, they've, they've praised artificial intelligence, but they've also issued some warnings. And these warnings keep piling up. And at first, when I read about them, I thought of science fiction books and f- science fiction novels, like this is a big conspiracy, these things won't really happen. But the names became more and more familiar as I read on. And I have an article from The New Yorker it's by a, a guy named Tad Friend. He, write, he writes in May 2018 this. He says, precisely how and when will our curiosity kill us? I bet you're curious. A number of scientists and engineers fear that once we build an artificial intelligence smarter than we are, a form of AI known as artificial general intelligence, doomsday will follow. Bill Gates and Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the World Wide Web, Web recognize the promise of AGI, yet each has voiced grave concerns. Elon Musk warns against summoning the demon, envisioning an immortal dictator from which we can never escape. Stephen Hawking declared that an AGI could spell the end of the human race. And such advisories aren't new. In 1951, 
the year of the first rudimentary chess program and neural network, AI pioneer Alan Turing predicted that machines would outstrip our feeble powers and take control. Later, his colleague, Irvin Gooding, pointed out that brainy devices could design even brainier ones ad infinitum. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man ever need make, provided that machine is docile enough to tell us how to keep it under control. And so these are big names. I've heard of these guys, I've read about them, and they're issuing a warning about AI. Hopeful, yet warning. They can't, they can't just cope with an intelligence that would be self-willed, autonomous, and dangerous. Even, even when I think about that, it's crazy stuff. And so what's interesting is the fear behind it. As humans, we would think that our creation having autonomy from us and, and having freedom to determine good for itself, we would see that as scary. For these qualities are qualities we thought to only belong to man. Autonomy, freedom to determine, freedom to do. And AGI poses a threat to all those things. And the world thinks in these categories, man and man's creation, and those things alone. But the Bible has more to tell us. The Bible shows us that there's something bigger than us out there, and he alone is ultimately autonomous. He's the only self-determining power in the universe, the universe he created, and he's God. But the world would be hostile toward this idea of God because it's too restrictive or overbearing. That the world reacts against God and his autonomy and his self-determining power. That reaction is called pride of life. Pride of life, um, the reaction against God is this. It's anything that elevates us above our station, giving us illusions of God-like qualities that bring within us haughtiness, presumption, ostentation, like, a, like showing off. Blind love for self. And as John Calvin said, pride of life brings a headstrong self-confidence, completely cut off from God. This is not worldly, or this is worldly. It's not of God. And the world, and even in the church, has these laces through it where the pride of life shows itself and controls. It's hostile to sovereignty. Just like AI would be hostile to the sovereignty of man, if you will, mankind is hostile to the sovereignty of God. We're fearful of machines claiming independence, but we're okay, we're okay claiming our own independence. Completely comfortable telling God that we're independent of him. And it's illusory. It's presenting a false view of ourselves. So, looking at this pride of life and how it reacts against God and his sovereignty over the universe, I've titled this sermon, Wisdom to Combat the Pride of Life. Because that's what James is going to give us. And our anchor today is going to be this, that our pride of life, especially in the church but in the world, is revealed when we seek to independently determine what is good for ourselves. And it is corrected by humbling, acknowledging God's sovereignty over our lives and our plans, holding those things with loose hands. I'm going to say it again. Our pride of life is revealed when we seek to independently determine what is good for ourselves. And it is corrected by humbly acknowledging God's sovereignty over our lives and our plans and holding those things with loose hands. So I'm going to read James 4, 13 through 17. I'll pray and then we'll get started. So James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and make profit. 
yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. And that as your word comes to us today uh, from James, Lord, that all of us here today would learn from it. That we would be able to recognize the laces of the pride of life that, that have grips on, on our thoughts and on our motives. And we would be able to combat them with the knowledge of your sovereignty and our submission to your will. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So some context for James chapter 4. As we've been going through the book, uh, we've been presented two different types of wisdom. We've, pre- we've been presented with a worldly wisdom and a godly wisdom. The Old Testament would call that like wisdom and folly. To have godly wisdom, to be wise. To have worldly wisdom, to be foolish. And operating in worldly wisdom specifically, James has shown us is to have this, to have passions, pursuits, and our livelihood align with however the world outside of God is operating. Say that again. It's when our passions, our pursuits, and our livelihood aligns with however the world outside of God is operating. And it presents itself as this. It presents itself as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. We would say that is pride. So worldly wisdom presents itself as jealousy toward other people and what they have and selfish ambition, a self-willed ambition to do as I please. Ron Coya last week, he showed us that the system of the world does not work. It promises big things and always under delivers. And the foundation of worldly wisdom is this. The foundation of worldly wisdom is pride. And where does that pride lead? Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So operating in worldly wisdom and in its pride will ultimately lead to the destruction of ourselves and the destruction of the world around us. Worldly wisdom even is presented as a, or excuse me, godly wisdom is presented as opposed to worldly wisdom. James 4, 6 shows that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So worldly, worldly wisdom is to be proud, living out of your pride. Godly wisdom is to be humble. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And James, in our text today, points out an area of pride that often goes unnoticed. It's the pride of life that leads and guides our planning. And James is going to give us the wisdom to combat it. So James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. James is speaking to a certain class of people at the time. He's speaking to a merchant class, people who make their livelihood from selling, from trading, often traveling to different places to make profits. And in Asia Minor, where the church was spread out specifically, there are many vibrant cities full of diverse peoples. And so if you were a merchant and you wanted profit, you would often go to these cities because they offered a better means of return than your villages or your small towns. So they wanted profit from their work. And initially, we can look at this, you know, come now, you say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such town, we'll do these things. We can look at that and say, is there anything really wrong with it? 
I mean, these guys, they're just planning. And all of us, we plan. Many of the careers in this room have been built off planning for the future. Planning for the future and for what? For profit. Whether that profit is job security, whether it's money, career progression, family profit, making your plans of where to live based on school district and church, what's comfortable for the family. We all make plans for our lives based on profit. And we plan so good can happen to us. And the planning, the planning's not necessarily wrong. When we look at this, we see planning and we might say, no, planning is good and you're right. What is wrong here is the presumption. It's presumption that comes from pride. So let's look at five presumptions listed here. Five presumptions. The first one, today or tomorrow we will. As though we have control over today or tomorrow. Ultimate control. I learned this, uh, I learned that I don't have control very early on in my marriage. Um, not, Not because my wife isn't awesome, she is. But originally when um, we made plans to get married, I was in an Air Force course and we were going to, I was going to finish my course, graduate, get married, go on a honeymoon, come to Japan, had it all planned out. It was a good plan. But as we uh, went through the course, uh, specific things had to happen, planes had to fly, missions had to go. And just because of certain circumstances, my graduation date kept getting delayed. And if you're in the military, you can probably relate to that. But um, I ended up having to go and get married and then take Sarah back uh, to Arizona. And we lived in a hotel for the first couple of weeks of our marriage, which was pretty awesome. Um, but uh, my graduation date never really came. It, specific things had to happen. And so I wouldn't know if we finished until the day of. And if you're planning a honeymoon, that is awful, like completely awful. So finally, the day came. I think it was two weeks after uh, we got married. The day came that I was finally finishing. I was really excited. I went back to the hotel. I was like, Sarah, we can finally execute our plans. So we sat down on the computer, and we didn't want to take more leave than we needed. So we, we literally bought tickets for the very next day out of Arizona to New Zealand. And we bought tickets. We booked all of our Airbnbs, booked our tours. We were pumped. The very next day, we're going to New Zealand. And uh, we show up at the airport the next day, very excited. And we go up to the lady at baggage claim and we give her our boarding passes and our passports. Come to find out, our boarding passes didn't have our middle names on them. I guess you need that when you travel internationally. <laughs> and, and it wasn't our fault. Like the website for Hawaiian Airlines, um, not to bash them, but they don't have an option for middle names, so I didn't think of it. But the, the woman, she was really kind. She's like, hey, I'll work on it. Just give me a little bit of time. And Sarah and I are like, all right, she's got it, so... We waited there and more and more time went by and it became very obvious like we were not catching our flight. And so she comes to us and she says, hey, just you're going to miss your flight. And I'm thinking, no kidding. And, uh, and, and she's like, well, don't worry, I'll keep working on it and I'll get you on the next one. And I'm like, good. So we look at the time, we can still make the connecting flight, all is well. But she comes back maybe a half an hour later and she says, just so you know, the next available flight is four days from now. Yeah, just like, that's not what you want to hear. Like, everything, I can't even tell you the mess that it caused. Like, it was just, it was terrible. All that to say, I couldn't plan it. Because if you, would, or I couldn't control it. If you would have asked me the day before, I would have told you I was in New Zealand Saturday. And it didn't come to pass, and it was outside of my plans. And, and God worked it. Like, we had a really great time, and we met some really great people that we probably wouldn't have met if we didn't have that delay. 
So I can't say good didn't come of it. All I can say is we can't control today or tomorrow. Second assumption, we will go to such and such town. As I just showed, you can't control your destinations or your movements. There are things outside of you that control where you go despite what we may think or what we may be comfortable with. How many of us in the military have been told, you're going here, and then you get diverted another place? Just a quick story. I was in Qatar, um, and while I was stationed there, I I was leading a Bible study for some Nepalis that uh, were working on the base. Worked with them for six months. They were great people, but I was really burdened because there was no one who would take over when I left. These guys were baby Christians just growing, and the chaplains on the base were busy. It didn't seem like God was bringing anyone. And then my best friend who had orders to Saudi Arabia at the last minute got diverted from Qatar or to Qatar and was able to spend six months with him. We can't control our movements and our destination. Something controls it on the outside and he has a plan and he works out those plans. Third assumption, we will spend a year there and we have no power to make that happen. Plenty of people wake up thinking that they're going to spend a year somewhere and might not make it that day. There's no promise that we'll even be alive next year. So to presume that we're going to spend a year from somewhere is not godly wisdom. Third assumption, trade and make profit. Interestingly, to say that Christians were going to go to such and such city and trade there and make profit, it just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't always likely you see, if you, were, if you were a merchant, you would take up your, your goods. You might hire some security and travel long distances to these cities. Uh, you would hire the security so you don't get robbed. And you would show up in these big, vibrant cities. And if you're a Christian, especially a Jewish Christian, uh, these cities are not kosher, if you know what I mean. And so you would go to what's called an agora, a marketplace. And in the agora, they had colonnades where Uh, wealthy merchants would set up permanently and large open spaces where people like you could come and bring your goods. And you would go to the manager of the Agora and you would say, hi, my name's Kyle. I come from such and such place. I have these goods. I heard you have been very blessed. I would like to trade and make profit. And the manager of the Agora would say, welcome. Yes, the gods have blessed us uh, greatly. We welcome you. Uh, feel free to buy and sell. Only before you do, make sure you pinch the incense and put it on the altar and burn it to Athena for she is Lord over the Agora. And as a Christian, you would have to make a choice. Oftentimes they weren't able to buy, sell, and trade. So to presume that they could, worldly wisdom, make profits, that's the fifth That's the fifth and final presumption. They can't control it. And what does James call these presumptions? What does he call them? In verse 16, he specifically says, you boast in your arrogance. He calls them arrogance. To presume upon our plans as if we can control them is arrogance. It's the Greek word alazonea. Now, this Greek word alazonea is used in one other place in the New Testament, only one. It's used in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, specifically verse 16. It goes like this. John writes, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the alazonea of life come not from the Father, but from the world. 
the alazonea of life. Our, our translations will often call that or translate that the pride of life. Arrogance and pride. This arrogance and pride comes not from godly wisdom. It comes from the world. And to operate in such a way is to operate outside of the way that God intends us to live as his people. Going on, verse 14, James says, what is your life? Or you, excuse me, yet you do not know what today or tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James says, if you want a good representation of your life, go outside on a frosty, wintry morning. Not here. But go outside on a frosty, wintry morning. Breathe out. Watch the vapor vanish. Behold your life. How can one in such a state as that determine what tomorrow will bring? We can't. And to presume is to lie to ourselves. We're presented, the world presents us to itself as autonomous, self-determined, and self-sufficient beings. But that's not true wisdom. In verse 16, James says this is specifically evil. And so James goes on to tell us how to correct our view on these things, the proper way to be. He tells us in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord wills, we will do this or that if the Lord wills. So instead of determining what today or tomorrow will bring, naming the towns we're going to go to, the profits we're going to make, James says, acknowledge God's sovereignty and control over your life. If God wills, we will. God wills, we will. Some verses that demonstrate God's sovereignty and his goodness. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap like dice, and its every decision is from the Lord. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, God says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. If God wills it, it will be. And we need that perspective because it cuts right through our arrogance. It cuts right through our pride of life, our self-deception. In the world, this is what the world does. It'll listen to those verses and it would respond to God this way. Even, it almost kills me to say these things. It'll respond to God as this, God, you are in the heavens, but I am on the earth. I will do what I please. It would look up to God and say, the lot is cast into the lap, but I'll still do what I want. It would look up to God and say, well, God, you can make alive and you can heal, but you have no right to kill or wound. And in fact, I will do all that I can to make sure that my life is not taken and I am never wounded. I will deliver myself from everyone's hand. It would look to God and say, I care not about what you've done of old. God cares not for the plans of man. He gives me free choice to determine my purpose and I will do all that I please. It's worldly wisdom that's hostile to God's sovereignty. 
And no one comes right out and says that, right? Like maybe Richard Dawkins or something, but no one comes right out and says to God these things. But when we make plans and when we determine out of our presumptions with no consideration of God and his sovereignty, we live out of the essence of these things. And James says that's evil. It's evil to presume. So if we fail to understand the nature of life and the sovereignty of God, we will always land on the pride of life, on arrogance and folly, We'll live out of a worldly wisdom that only brings us to destruction. And this week, I, I was thinking about these things and, and the traps that are offered us by the world, especially in the church. And there's two specific traps that I came up with. There's many more, but two that I see pretty regularly. And these traps always lead to the pride of life. They're ancient philosophies that wear new clothes, but they're ultimately old dead corpses. They're called Gnosticism and Epicureanism. Don't worry about the terms, I'll talk about them. But those two terms, they're worldly wisdom that have influenced our culture and our church, pushing us away from acknowledging God's sovereignty and always toward the pride of life. For Gnosticism, to summarize it briefly, it's a lot of things, but specifically this, it's the pursuit of knowledge in the face of a powerful world. And it's not the pursuit of knowledge outside of yourself. It's not like going to the Bible to find knowledge or going to a religious text. It's specifically the pursuit of knowledge that's hidden within. It's a, a divine spark within us that we have to uncover and reveal. They would say that God has placed, or the gods have placed knowledge within us that have been covered up by our family of origin and failed parental patterns and, and culture and, and religion. These things have suppressed the truth within us. And we have to seek them out to live fruitful, wise lives. And you find this, at least this theory or this philosophy, all throughout our, our media, especially in our movies. You'll often see a protagonist in a film who's viewed as the underdog or thinks of himself that way, but somehow digs down real deep to find out who he really is and goes out and accomplishes his task and is successful. You've probably read a few books like that or autobiographies. Self-determined individuals who find strength and knowledge within to accomplish their goals. And the world and God cannot interfere. In fact, to get into the way of these plans or this self-enlightenment would be violence toward them. There's no room for sovereignty outside of the individual. And this lie, it lies and tells us that the knowledge we need is within. And all we get is assumption and arrogance, the pride of life. The second one that sneaks in, Epicureanism. Thomas Jefferson famously said, I am an Epicurean. And what that means is that the gods, they're, or God, they're, they're outside, they're distant, they're far off, neutral beings that don't really meddle in the, in the ways of man. So they, they believe God is neutral, they don't believe in an afterlife, so their actions really don't have any future effect, or at least an afterlife effect. So they're free to determine what is good and desirable outside of any divine influence. And the world hates divine accountability. The world hates sovereignty over it. So it, uh, divine accountability can only impinge on the self-proclaimed right to self-determine. So Gnosticism are, and Epicureanism, but Epicureanism specifically, they work out in the church. Epicure, Epicureanism this way. We find in the church and even outside that many people would say they believe in God or even the God of the Bible. But they don't believe he's really at work in their choices and plans. So if you look at their lifestyle, if you look at their choices, their plans that they're making, 
they do so as though God were distant with no rights to interfere. No rights unless he's there to help. There's no fear of God or what's to come after death. In fact, today, we've kind of done it our own way. We say, because I raised my hand when I was little to a, to a pastor's call, I, I'm secure, I have my insurance, now I can go and live however I please. This worldly wisdom has sunk into the church. And if our actions of this life are separate from any divine influence which these things present us, then it's up to us to determine their goodness. And it's up to us to presume and to make plans. We live out of arrogance as though we really know what is good apart from God. And these two traps and many more give us the perception of freedom from any responsibility to God at all. It allows us to determine what is right in our own eyes, to live according to that wisdom. When we make plans apart from any thought of God or his will, We're just conforming to the way the world ultimately is already. And it's the pride of life. Despite God's self-proclaimed sovereignty over everything, we can operate out of a pride of life that's as if to tell God that we don't really believe him. So, at the root of the pride of life is evil. Going on, it says, as it is to act in such a way, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Worldly wisdom is folly. To look within is folly. Jeremiah would say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Don't look there. Look outside of you. If we detach ourselves from a responsibility to God, we're just fooling ourselves because God really is king and he beckons us forth. He calls us forth to seek our wisdom and our knowledge from him alone. And despite these philosophies sweeping us around As believers, we must stand firm in the acknowledgement that we are not ultimately in control. It's God who determines. It's God who's in control. And this could be scary, and it should be scary. God claims scary things. He claims to do all that he pleases. He claims to give and take life, that his purpose alone would stand. And we have to know that if we're gonna trust in that, we have to know if God is really good. Because if he's not, an all-powerful sovereign being making those statements would be the most fearful thing we could imagine. But if we want proof of his goodness toward us, we need only look to the gospel. Only look to the gospel. Ephesians 2.1 says, uh, As for us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world. So outside of Christ, following the ways of the world, we were dead in our transgressions and in our sins hostile to God, denying his authority. We chose to worship whatever we wanted. We chose what we would become. We chose our career paths. We chose what would result, and we were spiritually dead. But yet, but yet God does a work. You see, goodness, ultimate goodness, would be to judge us for our rebellion, to enact justice. But God shows us goodness. It says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, this was the plan all along, all along. You see, God and his sovereignty willed something. It was the will of the Lord, says Isaiah 53, to crush Jesus. It was God's free self-determining will to crush his son that out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, Jesus would see and be satisfied and that by his knowledge, Jesus 
would make many to be accounted righteous, that he would bear their iniquities. So thank God for his sovereignty and his self-determined plan because in our own self-determined plan, we killed Jesus when he came. But God self-determined that in a way that was sovereign even over us, that Jesus would come and die on our behalf, that God would get justice for our sins and that we would get forgiveness, that he can demonstrate his justice and his love toward us. God's will was to crush his only son, that they would be satisfied and that the faithful, those who would come to faith would be forgiven, even though they're formerly hostile toward him. And we have to ask ourselves, if God would go to such great lengths to see his will accomplished for his glory, for the redemption of his people, is there any reason that I should fear submitting to his sovereignty over my life? He's good. He's loving. He's demonstrated this in many ways, but specifically in the gospel of his son. So when it comes to the plans of our lives and making choices, the world's way is so attractive It says to determine on your own gives you a way of control and autonomy. But James and the church show to allow God to be sovereign. God determines to not acknowledge that would be folly. We're to allow God to be sovereign over our lives. And this is the cure, the cure that we need. Humbly acknowledge God is sovereign. And if we've been working against that, repent and live according to the wisdom God has revealed. In God's word, he has given us everything we need through life and godliness, through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of Jesus. So we humble ourselves. We submit to God's word as sovereign over our lives. We hold our plans with loose hands, saying, God, I have a plan for my life, but I know that your plan is ultimately better. I'm not gonna operate in the world's wisdom any longer. So we humble ourselves before God. And the good news is, the good news is that if God's will works against what we desire, it's okay because he's good. He's totally good. I I was thinking about this. 10 years ago, if I was to have everything I desire and everything I wanted to happen, like that would have been awful, like completely terrible that the plans of 18-year-old Kyle, you know, like totally not good. Thank God that he's sovereign and does what he wills. And so what's my batting average now? Am I still desiring good things? I only trust in God's goodness. I can't trust in myself. We don't always know what is good, but we know the only one who is good. And he gives us the way forward. He tells us he's sovereign and he beckons us forth to trust him with our plans. And then finally, in the closing, there's another warning in verse 17. It says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see, once we submit to God's will, we submit to his sovereignty, we no longer say, I will do this. We look back to God and say, if you will, I will. Once we do that, if we have this wisdom and we know what to do, we have to do it. You see, God fills us with his spirit to accomplish what he wills for us. And so if we know what we're supposed to do and we fail to do it, to fail to do it would be to go back to worldly wisdom and to live as you want. To not act, omission is also sin. So we have to reorient our lives around the sovereignty of God. We have to submit to his will, whether it's the revealed will from scripture or just the trust in God is willing and doing as he determines and it is good. 
and we must be obedient. Pride of life can be killed by humbly acknowledging God's sovereignty over our lives and living out of that, holding our plans with loose hands. And in all of this, we have to look to the cross. God has determined by his grace, his kindness toward us, and he has given us everything we need to trust him. And even more so, he has given us his spirit to do what he's called us to do. So let's trust. Let's walk in that. Let's live according to the spirit and submit to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us self-determined as if we could act and live outside of you. But Lord, I'm sorry that I've done it. I'm sorry that I've tried to control my life and make my own plans happen without submitting to what you revealed. Lord, and I ask that as we, as we go today, we would hold our plans with loose hands, that we would no longer presume to know what is good for us, but rather we would turn to you to know what is good. And Lord, would you please give us your grace to carry out what you've called us to do. Lord, thank you for James showing us that worldly wisdom is defeated by your sovereignty and the acknowledgement of it. I thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.